Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Well, I, I was going to start going off on the Walmart shooter. It turns out the, the Walmart shooter of last week was, yeah, a guy walked into a Walmart and shot it up. And uh, he had been living with a bunch of Bibles and no furniture. But now we've got another guy. We got 26 people dead. And, uh, you know, down in, down in Sutherland, Texas, this is, uh, this is the, we have now reached the point where more people have died in mass shootings in one year in 2017 than in any other year. A trend that began back in the 1980s and has just burst through that is showing the world the fundamental mental illness associated with a, an industry, in this case, the weapons industry, owning an entire political party so that people can buy, you know, weapons that have nothing to do with sports shooting, have nothing to do with hunting, have nothing to do with tradition or taking your kids out in the woods or any of that, you know, assault weapons. Hey, this, this is crazy. Chris Murphy spoke out this morning. Actually, it was yesterday afternoon. He said, the paralysis you feel right now, the impotent helplessness that washes over you as news of another mass slaughter scrolls across the television screen isn't real. It's a fiction created and methodically cultivated by the gun lobby designed to assure that no laws are passed to make America safer because those laws would cut into their profits. As my colleagues go to sleep tonight, Chris, Senator Chris Murphy said, they need to think about whether the political support of the gun industry is worth the blood that flows endlessly onto the floors of American churches, elementary schools, movie theaters, and city streets. Ask yourself, how can you claim that you respect human life while choosing fealty to weapon makers over support for measures favored by the vast majority of your constituents? Now, there's a, the, the Colorado killer, by the way, a guy named Scott Ostrom. Oh, he was just a loner. He killed three, three people last Wednesday. But we're now at, 
in mass shootings, people killed in mass shootings now, with the 26 at uh, the First Baptist Church, the 58 at the Las Vegas uh, Strip, uh, the 48 in the Pulse nightclub, the 14 in San Bernardino. I mean, it just, actually San Bernardino was last year, but it's, it just, it all is adding up to a, just a genuinely terrible situation. And there are, there are arguably multiple pieces to this. I mean, we've got the, the piece of there's too many, too many guns, particularly guns that can kill a lot of people really quickly. Too many weapons of war are floating around on our streets. And at the very least, we could go back to the, the, the rational and practical position that was even supported by the Reagan administration, which is, why do we need assault weapons? You know, assault weapons are for uh, armies and maybe for police departments in some rare situations, but not for the average person. This is crazy. And then, and then you look at, at how this is playing out and, and what's going on with this. If you go back and, and, and look at the connection here. Stephen Paddock, the guy who shot up Vegas, had a habit of berating his girlfriend in public. Okay, this is from a Quartz Media piece. Um, Stephen Paddock shared a trait with other mass killers. He abused women. This is by uh, Matt de Haldevang. And uh, he just goes through the list. Who were these people? Omar Mateen, 29, the Pulse nightclub shooter. Physically abused his former wife regularly. Uh, Sengen Hui Cho, uh, gunned down 32 people at Virginia Tech in April 2007, had been harassing women. Uh, Adam Lanza shot his mother four times before killing children at Sandy Hook. George Henner stalked two young adult sisters and wrote them a letter in which he called women vipers a few, a few months before he mur murdered 14 women and nine men in Killing, Texas in 91. Paddock reports the Los Angeles uh, reports the Los Angeles Times, back to Stephen Paddock, regularly demeaned his girlfriend in front of others at the local Starbucks where they were regulars. I'm paying for your drink just like I'm paying for you, Starbucks staff recalled him saying to Mary Lou Danley. In more than half of U.S. mass shootings between 2009 and 2016, the killer, invariably male, shot a current or former intimate partner or family member. Now, there's... A really important concept here of cultural shift, rapid cultural shift. We're seeing this happen right now with Harvey Weinstein. It is, this has, you know, just kind of exploded across the scene. And I think in part because Harvey Weinstein was a big liberal that the right-wing press, the Drudge Press and whatnot, uh, would give him the coverage that they weren't willing to give to, for example, Bill O'Reilly's sexual indiscretions or sexual crimes or whatever you may want to call it. And... And so there's like this moment when the press on both the left and the right are, are vilifying this guy and, and apparently with good reason. It is causing a cultural shift. I really think in America that 10 years from now, we will look back on this year and say, you know, that was the year when it became inappropriate for men to harass women in the workplace, basically. And, and worse, obviously, but just as a starting point. 
And, you know, we see these major inflection points in our culture and things shift. And, you know, it, it takes a while for things to shift, but things shift. If we're seeing that revolution, that change, that shift happening with regard to sexual assault, could we be seeing it with regard to gun assault as well? Now, there's also a clear association between mass shooters and people who abuse women. So it's almost like these things are coming together. And with regard to the Weinstein thing, I, I wonder to what extent does Donald Trump bear some, well, I was going to say bear some guilt, maybe deserve some credit, <laughs> would be the phrase to use, for Weinstein being outed. Because it, it, it seems that we have, you know, after all these reports of Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, assaulting and even raping some women, or the possibility of it. Trump, of course, is saying they're all liars. But I think that, uh, you know, especially after the Access Hollywood tape came out, a lot of Americans are saying, okay, enough. We're, we're sick and tired of wealthy, powerful men abusing people, particularly women, who have less power and wealth. Not going to happen anymore. So how do we turn these mass shootings into something similar? Now, with, with women being, uh, you know, uh, harassed and, and whatnot by men in the workplace, the way that that change is happening is people coming out and saying, me too, saying, here's, you know, here's what happened. And I'm wondering if when we start seriously telling the stories of the victims, something that the media almost never does, the closest they got to it, I think, was Sandy Hook. And even then, it was like, oh, we have to give these people space. We have to respect their privacy. And I'm wondering how much of that meme is being promoted by the NRA. You know, oh, you got, you can't talk about the, about the victim. Yes, let's talk about the victims. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And let's stand up and say, no, never again. We don't want this to be happening like this. We'll be back. And welcome back. Dave, watching Free Speech TV in Armstrong Creek, Wisconsin. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, yeah, I just want to say my heart uh, goes out to the uh, victims and the families and the friends of these people that were involved in this mass shooting, but it just seems like it's getting to be a, such a common thing. And I, I just want to say I've, I've spoken to you about a lot of issues in the past and I consider myself a very progressive person. At the same time, I've been a gun owner of my adult life. And, uh, you know, and I understand, as a gun owner, what these weapons were designed for, these high-capacity replicas of the military-style weapons. Right. They were designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible. Yep. Simple as that. And, uh, but I think the, some of the bigger issues, and you were kind of touching on this, is uh, we have a societal problem here. It's, it's something that, you know, you can't really legislate morality. At the same time, I, I, it wouldn't bother me a bit if they eliminated these assault-type weapons, the production and sale, tomorrow. 
But, you know, realistically, that's not going to happen. Dave, we, we actually no- do yeah. legislate morality. We've got all kinds of laws about morality. It's illegal yeah. to, to, to abuse people. It's illegal to molest people. It's illegal to steal from people. It's illegal to, I, you know, we, well, it, you can illegal, legislate morality. stop people from doing it, you know. Uh, um, yes and I no. Did. I think that a lot of people are stopped from from uh, from doing inappropriate or illegal things yeah. by the by the by the very illegality of those things. Well, well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, we we have to admit we have this problem, yeah. and we have to come up with you know not only just one solution because there's it's kind of a complex problem. And you were you were touching on a lot of the issues when before I I'm, I decided to speak today. And, you know, I agree with all you were talking about. And, but we have to admit we have the problem first and, and fi- figure out wh- how we got here yeah. in, in order to come up with any kind of a practical, realistic solutions. And, and we have to talk to each other, gun owners and non-gun owners alike. We have to, to be honestly address and have a good conversation about what can we do. Because I don't think anybody likes to see these things happening. You know, and, yeah. and you know, we're so polarized in the issue and this, this whole idea about the Second Amendment, it's just, you know, it's, it's gotten way out of hand, I think. So, I, I, I don't anyway. disagree, Dave. And, and, and I, I would say that the, um, the fetishizing of guns is a major problem here. But I think that the biggest problem is how our, how our national dialogue has been shaped by the lobbying firm for, or group for the weapons manufacturers. You know, we don't talk about the victims, for example. Um, we, we do name the shooters, but, uh, you know, I don't think that we, frankly, vilify them enough. I mean, it's, it's like we're fascinated by them sort of thing. And, and I'm wondering if that causes other people to say, hey, if I become a shooter, I'll be famous. You know, I'll go down in a blaze of glory. I'll go out like Bonnie and Clyde. You know, it's a great thing. And... You know, I'm, I'm just, you know, we, we have this issue of, of the possibility that SSRI drugs are contributing to some of this. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the larger cultural problem. There's, you know, most of these men seem to have problems with women. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of issues here. And I, I agree with you, Dave. I think that we all need to be discussing this. Dave, thank you for the call. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV. We'll be right back. Everybody's talking about superfoods, those nutritionally dense foods that are especially beneficial to your health. Did you know that one of the most powerful superfoods you can put into your body is beets? They're loaded with an important nutrient that increases your blood flow, which increases your energy. But who wants to eat a peanut pile of beets every day? Not me. But now you can get the energy benefits of beets in a powerful, concentrated superfood drink, Superbeets. Only Superbeets is made from beets grown to exacting standards, then concentrated into superfood crystals. Superbeets promotes the body's own natural ability to produce healthier circulation for increased energy and stamina all day long. So if you want the benefits of a powerful superfood, call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeets.com. With your first order, get another 30-day supply of Superbeets for free, plus indicator strips to see how Superbeets is working for you, and free shipping. So call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. That's 800-568-9889, tomsbeats.com on the interwebs.
just expand on this or, or develop this a little farther? When one of these unhappy, tortured, angry, misogynistic, whatever, uh, uh, gun-owning nutjobs, and sometimes they don't even own guns. They just go out and buy them specifically for this purpose. When, when one of these guys, and they're always guys, starts thinking about committing mass murder, what do you think is going through their head? Do you think it's like some Arnold Schwarzenegger fantasy? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be walking along and just shooting off. Is it, is it uh, blaze of glory stuff? Is it that they think of themselves like that Bonnie and Clyde thing that I, the, that I mentioned earlier? You know, the, the, the lovable bad guys? Do they think, how, how do they think of themselves? How, you know, they, they don't sit down and say, nobody sits down and says, you know, I think I'll become one of the most hated people in America. Nobody does that. So what they're thinking about is how the media has treated previous shooters and how the media fails to treat the victims. The victim, there, there is no equivalent to the sexual assault Me Too campaign going on on the gun victim side. There is no similar campaign going on right now. And I believe, putting on my talk show host hat, putting on my psychotherapist hat, putting on my, my just you know, rational person hat, I believe that if our media was to focus more on the victims, if we were to tell the stories of the victims, if we were to show the pictures of the victims, that that might be what is necessary to energize people to, to create change. And it might also cause future potential shooters when they're thinking about going out and buying a, an assault weapon and, and, you know, killing as many people as possible. It might cause them to say, hey, wait a minute. It might give them a moment of empathy. Now, I realize probably most of these people are beyond empathy, but probably not all. So why don't we talk about the victims? I mean, we, we regularly talk about other victims. I mean, you know, Trayvon Martin got shot by George Zimmerman. We were all over Trayvon. Who is he? Where does he go? What does he do? What, you know, what does he look like? Um, how is he behaving that, you know, et cetera. I mean, we talk about victims of crimes. And, and if you think of it in that context that I was mentioning in the, before the break about what is it that produces social change, cultural change, genuine cultural change, deep down inside the culture where the consensus changes? Well, it happened in Australia when, when in Tasmania in the late 90s, a crazy guy walked into a school and shot up a school. It was basically the, you know, their version of Newtown. And the Australians and the Tasmanians were so horrified by this, they said, okay, that's it, screw it. We're going we're gonna to do a gun buyback, and we're going to make it really difficult to own a gun unless you genuinely are a rancher or a hunter or a sports shooter, and you can document that. And you know how to use your weapon, and you know how to keep it, and you know how to, you know, and, 
And, and since they did that in the late 90s, Australia has not had one single mass shooting since then. They had a bunch of them before that. So it's not like we don't know how to do this. But the Australian press, when that school in Tasmania got shot up, did talk about the victims. Families who were victims of, of that shooting in Australia traveled around the country and talked about it. I mean, we, we had the beginning of something like that with the parents, some of the parents from Newtown who were speaking out. But then Newtown got politicized. And by politicized, I'm not talking about, you know, liberals saying, hey, you've got to, you know, prove that you need a gun before you get. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, saying you've got to prove you need a gun, even if you have a First Amendment right to it. You have First Amendment right to protest, to petition, to, to, to assemble in public and petition your government for redress of grievances. You have that right. It's right there in the First Amendment. And the First Amendment, presumably, at least in terms of priorities, trumps the Second Amendment. So you have the right to assemble in public, but you still need a permit. We regulate rights. We, we've been doing it all. You have the right to vote. It's regulated. You have, well, that's perhaps not the very best example given these, these days and all the voter suppression going on on the Republican side. But... You know, we have these basic rights, but that, there's nothing that prevents them from being regulated. And the Supreme Court even said this, even in the Heller case. Congress can regulate guns. But I think it's going to take one of those moments, like the Weinstein moment, where, a, where, where the victims start speaking out and America starts identifying with the victims and saying, holy cow, that was terrible. And then you get a cultural change. What do you think? We'll pick, you up, pick up your calls after the break. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Back with your calls after this. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The, the idea that we should begin talking about the victims of gun violence has been done before with some considerable success by the uh, forced pregnancy anti-abortion movement, uh, carrying around pictures of gory, bloody pictures of, of aborted fetuses. This is not a new strategy. And, you know, Frankly, I think that if, if our media, because that's where it's going to have to begin, right? The, the, the news agencies that actually have employees who call themselves reporters who are on the ground and doing this kind of work, they're going to have to go out and find these families and get their permission and publicize their stories. And there's going to have to be a broad consensus across the media that, you know, yeah, for the last 30, 40 years, we've never talked about the victims of gun violence because we didn't want to, quote, invade their privacy, end quote. Well, a lot of those victims are quite happy to share their stories with us. Some obviously not. But many of them more than enthusiastic to do so. Tulsi Gabbard, a, you know, a, a great, excuse me, Gabby Gifford, a, a great example. 
and her husband, uh, Steve Wilson, I think his name. But in any case, her, her husband, uh, you know, uh, and she putting together this organization and, and uh, speaking out about gun violence. It needs to go way beyond that. We need to see a lot of these victims. Dion in Round Lake, Illinois. Hey, Dion, what's on your mind today? Yeah, uh, what's on my mind is probably uh, two issues here is that we not only have a right to bear arms, but we also have a right to universal health care. And then the other thing is that I believe that we're also in a national mental health crisis. I was a victim of uh, child abuse, and then that can mess you up uh, up until adolescence. Your brain is hardwired, and that's what I think happened to the, the shooter here, which led to the domestic abuse of his wife. What do you think? I don't know. I think that anytime we try to say, here's why this person did that, we, we walk into very, very dangerous territory. The question, though, that we have to ask ourselves, Dion, is what is unique about the United States? Because, you know, in terms of having a bunch of angry white men around or a bunch of white guys who have been screwed by the system, uh, you know, there's actually probably more people who meet that definition in Europe than there is here in, in North America. And particularly with the crisis that in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, I mean, you've got countries where you've got, you know, unemployment rates that are pushing 25 percent. It's some some real serious problems. And they're not turning into mass shooters. In fact, they're not even turning into mass killers. I mean, they're not killing people with cars and they're not killing people with, you know, swords and things. They're just not killing people. So what is different? about the United States? What is different about our culture? And I, I would well, say... We're a violent country, a nation built on violence and genocide of Indians. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that... we killer, Tom? Yeah, we, we have always celebrated genocide. We, you know, the old cowboy and Indian movies that, that I grew up with as a kid in the 50s and 60s. Uh, this, this is absolutely, Dion, absolutely. We, we, are, we are a country that was birthed in genocide. And... And, uh, you know, it's and we haven't done what Germany did. We haven't we haven't gone through a national uh, collective. Oh, my God, we haven't done a uh, we haven't been through a, re- a process of reconciliation like South Africa did. We need to do those things. Dion, thank you for the call. Ron in Land of Lakes, Florida. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Hey, thank you for taking my uh, call, Tom. And sure. uh, you're absolutely right with everything you're saying. Psychologically, you know, if you go back to the uh, Reagan era, we had mental institutions all over this country to help curb and stop this thing from getting out out of hand. But then when you have the leader of this country saying that he could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot a person and not lose a vote, these other people figure, you know, well, hey, if he can do this, that, and the other, you know, I'm, I'm pissed off and I'm upset, you know. I'm, I'm just going to go do what I feel is going to make me feel good. But, right. you know, it only takes a couple of seconds to do something that you feel sorry about for the rest of your life. You're but absolutely right. We aren't seeing that. And we, like you said, we're not dealing with the victims and what they and their families have to go through. See, just like I, I think that Trump saying that he can grab women by the crotch and, 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 you know, blowing off the women who have accused him of, of uh, sexual assault, in my opinion, has right. so upset many people in the United States, women and men, um, but women in particular, that, that I think many are, are, 
are saying, you know, to hell with all these, uh, uh, you know, the, the fear of retribution and, and all of the things that might have restrained us in the past. You know, it, 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 it's, it's now important to, to lay out what's going on, you know, what is happening right now in America. And we haven't done that with guns. We've, we've, you know, we've done that with a bunch of different things. Yeah, Ron, well said. Thank you very much for the call. Guy in Fall City, Washington. Hey, Guy, what's up? Yeah, Tom, uh, I was just uh, talking, you were talking about cultural change. Uh, in 80 years, I've watched the cultural change, and it started with the media back in the days of Ronald Reagan when demonizing people, poor people like welfare queens, and they, they, they just did away with the FCC. They just rattled the FCC, where now corporations control 80% of the media. Since when? is the liberals uh, backing the corporations. Yeah. It's a joke when I hear a Republican say the liberal media. Well, it's also, Guy, you know, you, you, you point out uh, the, the change in television programming in the 80s. Um, not only was there a change in what they were, what they were uh, decrying, what they were complaining about, but there was a change in who they were praising. Uh, remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Dynasty, um, there were a couple of other dynasty-like movies. I mean, all of a sudden in the 80s, you know, in the 70s and the 60s and 50s, television had been about average people, right? Uh, Lucy and Ricky right. lived in a, in a normal apartment in New York City. Uh, Jackie Gleason lived in a fourth floor walk-up apartment, a cold water uh, apartment, you know, cheap housing, right, <laughs> in, in New York City. And, his, and, his, and he and his friend, uh, uh, Art Carney, uh, the character that Art played, um, they, they both were union workers. One worked in the sewer, the other drove a bus. I mean, we, we used to have, you know, Laura and, and, uh, and Rob Petrie. You know, we used to have average American, essentially role models on television. And then during the Reagan era, it became all about greed is good and rich people are the very best there is. And that was the kickoff of, of, the, of the persona that we know of today as Donald Trump. That was, that, that was when Trump really stepped onto the national stage as an example of conspicuous consumption, of, of, of disgusting excess that was celebrated um, by the Reaganistas. Tom, my, my, excuse me, Tom, my, uh, what I really want to get the public and yourself to be aware that the media is using Trump as a smokescreen for for what the legislation that is being passed by Congress. They're not telling the people. Yeah, you're talking about things like the changes in ownership rules that will allow Sinclair to own TV stations that reach 70-some-odd percent of the American public? Is that, is that what you mean? What, I, what I'm telling you about is what I talked to you before about the CRA. They have repealed. They have repealed labor laws, environmental laws, uh, uh, safety laws, uh, Tom, uh, the the uh, the uh, uh, carbon, carbon, the uh, yeah. Now, Garrett Guy, there's a list in today's in today's New York Times, I believe it is, of some 50 environmental rules and regulations that Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump are doing away with. And these are things that, you know, keep us safe. Uh, 
They, they protect us from poisons. They, they protect us from, from a, a poisoned workplace and, and, and poisoning our food. And, and the Trump, Trumpettes are just doing away with this stuff. It's like, you know, whatever big business and, and, and billionaires want, big business and billionaires will get from the Trump administration. It's very straightforward. Please, Tom. The only place that you'll get that information factually is C-SPAN. I watch it. I watch Congress. I've been on yeah. the floor every day. Yep. No, Guy, I, I, I agree with you. C-SPAN is, is a great asset. Thank you for the call. Gary in Sandy, Utah. Hey, Gary, a quick one here. Yes, good, mor- good morning here. Um, it's late morning. I just have a, one comment, and here's, here's the comment. There are... Wacko, right wing, and I, I don't know whether any other name to call them, who promulgate the story that Sandy Hook never happened. Right. But all of those grieving families who went before Congress, or, or not all of them, but a part of them, went before Congress, all of that never happened. The Floyd massacre never happened. And I'm sure this person's going to say that, the, that, that this thing that happened in Texas never happened. Well, but here's the problem. Otherwise, people that you would think would be rational believe these terrible stories, these egregious lies, this hyperbole that's made up. And, and you know, an Old Testament prophet said, come now, let us reason together. Well, this is so unreasonable, it's incredible to, to say that all this grief and act all staged and all the grieving families of these massacres is all I don't think anybody's taking that seriously, Gary, but uh, excellent point. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, there might be a small fringe of people who who take seriously what Alex Jones and those folks on that side are saying, but I, I don't think they're consequential. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, Reverend David Billings. He is a native of Mississippi, a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Uh, He needs to turn his volume down. (laughs) A historian with social justice organizer and author of a book, Deep Denial, the Persistence of White Supremacy in History Oops, I just lost it. In History and Life, deepdenialbook.com is the website. You can tweet him at UM Church. Uh, Reverend David, David Billings, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, so it, I, I find your book fascinating, and particularly the... You've got you've to turn that volume down somehow. Uh, but in any case, I, I found your book fascinating, the, particularly the part about where you talk about you know growing up white in the South uh, can we de- can we define terms to start out? Uh, how would you define white supremacy? I would think that white supremacy has to do with the uh, the structures and institutions that support and affirm the lives of white people in the United States. White supremacy covers, you know, all institutional interactions as well as economics and other types of things. But white supremacy is the uh, Rarely challenged, rarely even mentioned as a factor in this society, and yet it permeates uh, the nation's history. To what extent is, I mean, you're describing white supremacy as something that is there for white people. In other words, a, 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 
are arguably, uh, using the word positive in this context is very difficult, but I, I don't know how else to say it. You're, you're defining it as a support system for white people. But isn't it also at the same time a, uh, a destruction system or, or a, an oppression system for people of color? Absolutely it is. And, uh, you know, it, in, it impacts everyone of color in this, this country and, you know, certainly black and brown. So who are the white supremacists, uh, to, to, to paraphrase a question the New York Times asked Henry Wallace in 1944, who are the white supremacists that we should be concerned about? Are they the people like Richard Spencer who are obvious and out there and saying it? Or is it the, the, the person who lives next door who, who uh, you know, is just constantly uh, dropping you know, uh, microaggressions on people and and or making hiring decisions at work that, you know, are not visible to the world at large, but but are supporting the infrastructure of white supremacy. It's all of those. But I, I uh, think white supremacy really um, is upheld by those of us uh, in the professions, those of us who even would decry uh, white supremacy and say, I certainly don't agree with the Spencers of the of the world. But don't do anything about it. We uh, we just, you know, decry racism and white supremacy, say we're against it, we're abhor, you know, it's abhorrent. But we don't organize to do anything about it for the most part. And and a lot of us, as the title of my book suggests, you know, we're just in denial about the impact of race and uh, white supremacy in this society. And we're encouraged to be in, in denial by all the institutions of society. Um, thus, we take no responsibility for the outcomes uh, in this society. And, and those of us who are white, um, we're, we're uneducated around race and white supremacy. We, we don't have to study it. It's always an elective. It's never a requirement. Which is one of the principal benefits of white privilege, is it not? Oh, yes. Uh, White people don't have to bother with this. And, and because we, uh, you know, we don't understand it, we just have an opinion on it. Right. And opinions, you know, can uh, be many and varied. And I think there's an intent to that throughout the history of this country. So where, I mean, you know, clearly we've had institutions of white supremacy in the United States, uh, government institutions of white supremacy. We have business institutions of white supremacy. I'm thinking, you know, redlining by the banks, for example, with real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, there's a million smaller examples. What are the institutions of white supremacy that in the past we have taken apart? And what are the institutions of white supremacy that in the present we need to have a discussion about taking apart? Well, you know, yes, the the fact that none of our institutions uh, are, you know, see they see race as just one among many factors in this society. When you do that, you dilute the impact of race. In my opinion, we put racism on a on a line with other oppressions, but this is a race constructed nation. That's one thing. Now, currently, it's the dismissal from the black voice. I think as your your previous discussion was going, um, it, it dilutes the power, say, of Black Lives Matter. It dilutes the uh, the meaning of of uh, the the 
violence that has occurred so often in this country of late and um, as you know as just an aberration when in fact it's a uh, it's yet another example of how this country uh, and its white uh, people not just its majority but it's it's all of us who are white uh, we we try not to face the realities of racism and even, uh, as I said, deny that it, that it exists in some quarters. But that's not just conservatives or haters or whatever language you use. It goes to the very heart of the, um, the systems and their history and why they were created that still um, create our realities uh, today. Yeah. Would you would you say that, for example, uh, the attempts to uh, limit the the ability of people to vote by requiring them to produce, uh, you know, a birth certificate or a passport in order to register to vote? Uh, yes. Is that an institution of white supremacy? It is, you know, and, and throughout this nation, as blacks and people of color got the right to vote, uh, this nation would try to limit that, whether it's in the immediate aftermath of civil rights or uh, towards the end of the uh, 19th century and throughout the 20th century. Uh, the the exercise of the right to vote suffrage has been fought every step of the way, still being fought today, so that efforts to limit the impact uh, and limit the understanding uh, of those of us who are white um, or lim- we we don't understand the uh, the dramatic efforts that are put right. towards limiting the voice of, of people of color. Reverend Billings, we have just a just a minute left. We're talking with Reverend David Billings, the author of Deep Denial: The Persistence of White Supremacy in U.S. History and Life. What should white people? What can white people do to wake up from their own denial? I think we have to. Um, we have to study. We're, we're ignorant on the matter of race. We have to know that, like anything else, it has a beginning and uh, it has impact. We have to study that. We have to join with other whites to gain clarity uh, about what racism truly is. It's not, you know, just or even primarily uh, is, it, is it attitudinal or even acts of meanness. It's an arrangement. It's a structure that goes back to the very foundings of the nation. Now, a lot of us don't know that. Many of us do. The question is, what are we going, you know, how do we act, how do we organize in our churches, in our universities, um, and, and, you know, and in the larger economy? How do we organize to impact this arrangement that um, rushes aside, basically, the voice of people of color? Yeah. Well, step one is calling it out, which, which seems like you're doing a brilliant job of. Reverend David Billings. Uh, native of Mississippi, a pastor in the United Methodist Church, historian, social justice organizer, and the author of the new book, Deep Denial, The Persistence of White Supremacy in History and Life. DeepDenialBook.com is the website. Dr. B- Dr. Reverend Billings, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Great speaking with you. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is uh, Lisa Stokey. She is the founder and executive director of Next7 and co-director of Food Democracy Now. Next7.org is the website. 
And uh, Lisa, and you can tweet Lisa at Lisa underscore, underscore S-T-O-K-K-E. Lisa, welcome to the program. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So the Food and Drug Administration has create and correct me in fact you know jump in and interrupt me if any at any point if i get any of this wrong um the fda the or the usda okay thank you the the usda established standards for what is organic if you want to label something as organic it's got to be you know made grown produced whatever in a certain way and and uh they want to extend those standards to things that are produced hydroponically um, yeah. Why yeah. is that a bad idea? Well, you know, I tell you what, you know, the, the, you know, those that would like to have hydroponic certified organic have done a really good job at trying to confuse the issue. But, you know, for, for myself and, you know, other advocates and certainly, you know, long time pioneering organic farmers who helped to write the standards and have been farming organically for decades are really super clear. You know, that organic has always been in the soil. You know, nurturing the soil, building the soil, growing in the soil has always been a foundation of organic agriculture. And so, you know, just looking at that, you know, simple aspect of it, right, that soil is foundational, hydroponic doesn't really fit in with that, right? Right. You know, because, you know, a a plant is getting its nutrients from a, a nutrient solution and not from, you know, the rich, fertile soil that organic farmers build. And so, sadly, you know, we had that vote last week, and, and we lost that vote, you know, that our National Organic Standards Board could not agree that uh, the foundation of organic is in the soil. And so, you know, a lot of organic farmers around the country today are really finding themselves in a, in a very unique and uh, situation, I would say. And USDA has proven itself to not be a good partner. Yeah. So, okay. So with soil, uh, let's, let's define terms here. Dirt is, is ground up rock. Soil is ground up rock combined with massive amounts of organic material and living organisms, literally billions of living organisms per teaspoon. Um, that is soil and all those living organisms interact with things growing in that soil to transport uh, nutrients, for example, you see, you know, fungi, fungi uh, performing this, bacteria performing that function. Um, all of that goes away when you do something hydroponically. You're you're just delivering, you know, water and nutrients directly to the roots of the plant, um, you know, without the benefit of assistance by fungi and and bacteria and and you know viruses or whatever. That's, um, that's so you've got right, that yeah. number one and number two. Typically in hydroponic, at least the hydroponic operations that I've seen over the years, there's a lot yeah. of plastic piping and plastic tubing, and this this uh, uh, soft plastic uh, yeah. releases estrogen mimicking chemicals. So I, I don't, you know, unless you're going to do hydroponic gardening with with uh, stainless steel pipes or water pipes, I mean literally, or excuse me, glass pipes for to carry the water that are not, you know, reactive with the water. I don't see how you how, you, how could you call that organic? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. You're, you're spot on. And, you know, this is the question, you know, that we've been raising as well at, at next7.org. And maybe you saw our, you know, our emails that we put out. And, uh, you know, in 48 hours uh, before the meeting, I got almost 100,000 people, you know, to sign on to this and say that, that just exactly what you're saying, you know, that, that, 
butter lettuce grown, you know, floating in styrofoam, in water, in a nutrient solution, and plastic tubing with phthalates, just like what you were saying that we know to be harmful, right? Endocrine disrupting chemicals. That's not organic. And, you know, and you're 100% right. And it's, and like, like I said, you know, it's, it's really a disturbing situation that we're in, um, you know, because millions of consumers, people, citizens rely upon, you know, the organic label. And it just isn't, it's just the shadow, you know, of what it used to be. And organic is now a victim of its own success. Right. So, so basically what you've got now are companies that have figured out using hydroponic technologies, they can grow more food faster without the need for farms, you know, without the need for as much dirt or soil. Yeah. And you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it is, you're, you're, you know, you're touching on that there, that it's just another, you know, uh, avenue for consolidation in our food industry, right? right? I mean, this is like the new CAFO, you know, confined animal feeding operation, you know, and GMO model, you know, mm -hmm. that they have now implemented here. And, and you're right. I mean, the people that have invested in hydroponic and, and uh, you know, are looking to have it certified as organic are people like who? Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, who just bought Whole Foods. And, yes, they can have higher profit margins when they are growing food hydroponically, right, as opposed to paying, you know, and supporting Does Whole Foods produce farm. any of, do, does Whole Foods produce any of their own food? I thought they were just a retailer. What is happening now, you know, and this is still this is still emerging, right? Because that that sale, you know, of Whole Foods to Amazon is still pretty fresh, right? right. Pretty recent. But there are uh, stories, you know, in you know uh, in TechCrunch, there's a story that came out a few months ago um, about how Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt um, of Amazon and Google, respectively, have invested in a company called Plenty. Um, Plenty is a hydroponic operation. You know, the, the Plenty mm. uh, representatives and lobbyists were crawling at the meeting last week, the National Organic Standards Board meeting. Um, you know, as these meetings are, it's a lot of industry folks that show up and try to convince, you know, the National Organic Program, the National Organic Standards Board, you know, to, you know, allow things into the organic program that really, quite frankly, don't belong, you know, that, that are not organic. Yeah. And, and so this is, you know, no pun intended, but this is really a watering down, you know, of the organic standards in a very significant way. And, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, as a mother, I have four children. I've been feeding my kids organically since, uh, since day one. My oldest is 26 years old. And, you know, people like myself, you know, mothers and all kinds of people rely upon that organic label. You know, to know that it, it is like the, you know, nutrient-dense food that not only is, you know, good food, right, that doesn't have pesticides and GMOs, but also has those, you know, rich nutrients from the soil, but also that it's, it's nurturing the future. And that's what Next 7 is about. It's about nurturing the next seven generations, right? Mm. And not thinking about just the next seven days or the next seven years even, right? right? But, you know, in all of our decisions to be thinking about how we are helping the next seven generations. And having more of those soil-based, you know, good, salt-of-the-earth, organic farmers, having more of those and growing that, we're at less than 1% right now of all of our agricultural land. It's less, less than 1% of it's organic. And we need to be growing that, right? Because that's our solution. Organic farmers, regenerative farmers, they sequester carbon 
from the atmosphere, right, which is what we need to do to help mitigate the effects of climate change, right? right? And we're building that soil so we have more nutrient-dense food. So this is really, really an unfortunate time, you know, for the USDA and the National Organic Program to be, you know, essentially throwing rocks. Is this entirely the, uh, Lisa, we have a little less than a minute. Is this entirely at the USDA? Is there a trade association involved in this? Is there some, uh, you know, industry group that's pushing this? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a good question. And a lot of people think that they misunderstand me when I tell them that the Organic Trade Association has actually been um, against us on this. You know, they have been oh my. in favor of hydroponics and organic. So they're representing the, the, the manufacturers or the farmers, yeah. as, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Lisa, that's we're out of time. But uh, okay. Lisa Stokey, the former, uh, excuse me, the founder and executive director of Next7, N-E-X-T, number7.org is the website. Uh, yeah. Lisa, thanks so much for dropping by. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. Enjoy Good talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with more of your calls and uh, more of the news of the day as well right after this. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent in my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to keep having to take breaks or to stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X-Chair want you to feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com, that's the letter X, chair, T-H-O-M.com, not only will they knock $100 off the price, but they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code TOM. Just go to xchairtom.com now. I love my X-Chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom, that's xchairtom.com. Check out xchairtom.com. And be sure to use THOM as the promo code for your $100 discount. Welcome back. Stephanie in Winterville, Georgia. Hey, Stephanie, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, Jay's discussion of race. And um, it just made me think about, um, I, I guess I wanted to be, I'm a white woman, but I wanted to just say that I'm also forced to think in terms of sex, in terms of my safety every day, and in terms of, uh, sexual harassment at workplaces, which I've had happen to me. Um, I'm also a, a survivor of sexual assault by uh, a man, and I also um, I am also a person who takes SSRIs to treat uh, clinical depression. So I wanted to uh, push back on that a little bit with you. Um, I don't know if you have ever experienced major depressive disorder in your life, but. Um, I have, and um, I uh, part you know part of it has to do with being female and in this world. And I um, I worked with a psychologist in talk therapy for three years before I ever tried antidepressants. And um, I was that whole time, you know, I don't agree with you that they're addictive. When I go off them, and I do sometimes, um, my depression it just comes back. So basically pretty much all day, and again, I have been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, um, I, it's just you're constantly suicidal. It's impossible for me to hold a job. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is that they have been life-saving for me, and I think to That's great. people who need that, 
with someone who perpetrates mass shootings, it's, um, it's really stigmatizing. And I meditate and I eat healthy and I, ironically, you know, like the sexual assault that happened to me actually happened when I was out taking a walk. Um, so that might be like some of your male privilege kind of blinding you to what different people have to do to, to be able to survive. Well, here's, here's what I'm trying to say, Stephanie. We know, we know for a fact that people on SSRIs are more likely to kill themselves and other people. It, uh, that's, there that is, is a label on experience. the... Stephanie, if you look at the bottle, your prescription bottle, look at the prescribing information, that's, it has a black box stop. on it that warns that's, against that. So l- let me finish what I was saying, if, I, if you may. You, may. you probably are going to agree with me when I'm done, I, I hope. Um, so number one, we know that SSRIs have this as a side effect because they diminish affect. They diminish the individual taking them's sense of connection to everything else around them. And so people feeling slightly separated from all of their feelings um, is a good thing if their feelings are overwhelming and negative. And so for somebody with, you know, a major depressive disorder who responds well to SSRIs, God bless you, Stephanie. That's a wonderful thing. The problem, it's just like, you know, it's, it's like saying, okay, we, you know, we, we use knives to, to cut our food, but people can kill people with knives. You know, it's, it's, there, there is a, uh, and, and uh, if you want to make the analogy with drugs, we use opiates to kill pain after surgery, but you can also get addicted to opiates. So what I'm saying is that there is a downside to, to these SSRIs and, or there can be a downside. There's also an upside, obviously, and, or they wouldn't be in the marketplace and they wouldn't be prescribed. But my personal experience with them and, and with having people close to me and people that I know really well using them has been broadly negative. But I have known a, a couple of people who had, you know, major depressive episodes and, and they thought SSRIs would help them out. Well, what, what would you like people to do that have major? Because it would be great if you I should, had like a, a community you should do, around me. Of- I'm not trying to dictate anybody's anything, Stephanie. What I'm, what I'm saying is that, number one, there there's a... You know, I, I don't want to debate pharmacology with you because y- you you have something that's working for you. You should have that available. It should be available to other people who have the kind of crisis you have. I've never shot anyone. I'm not a mass shooter. I'm not you exactly know, I don't hurt anyone. Exactly. And there's and there there's also a number of other drugs that can be used to treat depression. And there there are other techniques. But I, as I said, I don't want to debate that with you. I what what I'm saying is that. One of the things that we have found is that a, a lot of these young shooters, the school shooters, were on SSRI drugs. There's uh, some of the older ones were on SSRI drugs. It makes sense, actually, that if somebody's taking a drug that disconnects them from their feelings, they're going to be disconnected from their negative feelings. They may be disconnected from regulatory feelings as well. Not you, necessarily, but somebody else. And that's why that label is on those drugs that says that it increases the risk of suicide and violence. And I just, I, I, okay, I just think it's important to acknowledge that most people in this country who are actually on SSRIs are actually female. And, I mean, a huge part of that is, you know, we're just trying to survive, like, this cultural context that, um, I mean, I can't walk alone at night without feeling... Every man I see pretty much is a potential threat to me. And I guess, you know, you could call that overreacting or whatever... But most women I know have had either an assault as bad as mine or, or worse. And um, I just, 
I feel like there's very little empathy in the in the mainstream culture for discussion of that. People don't, white men in particular, don't seem to take it as seriously as racism. And, you know, just trying to deal with that, it's like, maybe I am numbing myself a little bit, but I don't know what the alternative is. The alternative is just like this constant crushing pain where no one cares and no one listens. Right. I understand. I understand. Well, thanks, and and I, 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 I'm, I'm so glad that you've been able to find something that works for you, Stephanie. And, you know, I, I hope it continues to. With regard to shooters, though, we as a society need to be looking at what it is that's going on in our culture. And I think that we're looking at multiple factors here. We're looking at the brutality of, of testosterone-driven behavior in our society. We're looking at the proliferation of weapons. We're looking at uh, the, just last year in Congress, who got money from the drug industry? Ted Cruz got $360,000. Marco Rubio got $176,000. Paul Ryan got $171,000 from the gun industry. Number three legislator in Congress. Uh, number four, John, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin got $165,000. Rand Paul, $155,000. Those six guys are the top six recipients of gun, uh, all six figures, Ben Carson as well, uh, of money from the gun industry. You think that they're gonna call out the gun industry? I'm, I'm skeptical, shall we say. So anyhow, thanks so much for being with us. Happy Daylight Savings Time. And we will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.